The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. The title of my message tonight is The Characteristics of a Faithful Christian. The text is first, uh, I'm sorry, is Titus chapter, chapter 1. But before I start there, I was thinking that this is the last service of 2018. Friday, I started thinking about that. Um, hopefully, we've taken some time to reflect on the year it's been. I have a feeling that 2019 is going to be significantly harder than this year was. That leads me to ask this question. Is it just me, or does our society seem as it's become totally dysfunctional? Does it seem that way to you? It seems with each passing day, we see the further degradation of our culture. We live in a time in which the godless in our society sow chaos. Have you noticed that our society no longer pursues excellence? It pursues diversity. Every day we are assaulted with a different hysteria. This is important. Whatever destroys norms is beloved by the people embracing the secular progressive agenda of our day. It's like a new religion. For example, we see the constant drumbeat of impeachment of our president by the press and certain more unstable members of Congress for committing no crime. All the while, many of his accusers' actual crimes are ignored or covered up. We've heard recently that separating children from their families who have broken our immigration laws is a crime against humanity. Yet, separating a child from its mother in the womb is a right no one can ever question. There was a time when a man who masqueraded as a woman would have been diagnosed as mentally ill. Not so today. The hysteria of the feminist movement has reached bizarre proportions as we witness unsubstantiated allegations of sexual abuse intended to destroy the reputation and career of our most recent Supreme Court nominee, with zero proof. Think about this. Young women have been born into the greatest country in the history of Earth, and, that, and, and, and they've been taught the opposite. We are supposed to believe that men hate women and seek to oppress them. Last I checked, our mothers have been women. Also, our wives, grandmothers, granddaughters, daughters, and even our friends are women. Men hate women. Men hate women in the same way they hate oxygen. We should really put this to bed, but we won't. It'll go on and on. When we hear about this dysfunction, we should be shocked, but it's hard to be shocked when each day we hear of an ex- uh, a hysteria more extreme than the last. 
our society has deemed it normal, and the church seems to be following a similar pattern. The church has, in many ways, become a reflection of the world. Many churches don't even look like churches anymore. Sometimes they look like nightclubs. They offer self-help programs. They offer motivational speeches, which have very little doctrinal content. Methodology has replaced theology and supplanted the church's primary mission, which is the preaching of the Word of God. People are not going to church to know the Word in order to live the Word so that they can preach and teach the Word. They go to be entertained. So I'm not saying any of this to be provocative. I just happen to believe it. I say it in order to illustrate what we are contending with. The Bible tells us that we are to contend for the faith. Jude 1.3 says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. We're called to contend. Whether it is the is the depravity outside of the church or the compromise within it, we are commanded to contend. Contend simply means to engage in rivalry, compete, fight, assert, affirm, maintain. The Bible tells us we are in a war, but it is not a physical war. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. This is the war for the minds and the souls of men. On the one side, you have the enemies of Christ who are extremely motivated and determined. On the other side, you have the friends of Christ. And we actually look like an army in retreat. We are commanded to put on the whole armor of God to fight against the the kingdom of darkness. But I think it's true to say godlessness has affected Christianity more than Christianity has affected godlessness. Matthew 5.13 says, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing. But to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. So tonight I will, I will um, we'll be looking at some godly characteristics that will help us to impact our culture rather than being conquered by it. Before we do that, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege to be up here tonight. Thank you that we have a church that still stands for the truth. We want to hear the truth and we want to grow. Help us, Lord. Help me tonight. Help me communicate clearly and help us to be changed by what we hear help us to grow closer to you and be and be able to give you all the honor and praise in jesus name i pray amen Uh, titus chapter one if you don't mind if you get there could you please stand with me as we read titus titus chapter one verse one Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
according to the faith of God's elect in the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this cause left I, left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set, shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. Thank you. You may be seated. So what we see in the first five verses, the Apostle Paul having traveled to the island of Crete during one of his three missionary journeys. Most commentators think this was probably his first. What we see is that things needed to be set in order because the culture of Crete was a place of moral bankruptcy. The application for us, us is the culture would have undoubtedly affected the churches there in the same way the pagan culture of our day is affecting us. The Cretans were depraved. These people must have been notorious because we can still see the word in our common vernacular today to describe such a person. In fact, Paul quoted the poet Epimenides and said in Titus chapter 1, verse 12, quote, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. The word is actually to be a lazy, gluttonous person. This was an opinion shared by many of that time. So that was a little bit of background, but what I want to talk about tonight is actually verses 6 through 12. You don't have to stand back up, but we'll be going over them. Titus chapter 1, verse 6. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. So these verses give us the qualification for the pastor. But these virtues described here have application to all of us as Christians. We should all be exhibiting these characteristics. If we are going to be effective in our witness to our culture and indeed to our own brethren, it is vital that we all strive to master them. But more importantly, it is, it is essential that the men in this church, that we do not fail in these areas. Why? Because men have essentially been dispossessed of their role of leadership within the culture. 
If we allow this trend to carry over to the church, which it is, the church will cease to function in the way God has intended. Why are these virtues important? Why should the pursuit of them be our highest ideal? Because the church should be so well-defined that it confronts the world. How are we going to confront the world if we look just like them? If we're not reproducing physically, humanity will cease to exist, right? In the same way, if we're not reproducing spiritually, the same thing will happen. It actually is happening. As the older generations pass away, they're not being replaced. It takes a long time to build something. It takes a very short time to destroy it. So let's look at this. Titus chapter 1, verse 6. If any be blameless. Blameless means to be without fault, innocent, guiltless, not meriting censure. Ten out of the twelve times this word appears in the New Testament, it's referring to this attribute. This is not referring to sinlessness, but a life that is beyond reproach, not guilty of any criminal activity, and particularly not chargeable with any of the vices hereafter mentioned. Continuing with verse 6, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. Husband of one wife is unambiguous. And this is for the young people here. The way it works is you meet a girl with your same doctrinal convictions. That is so important. If you, if you think that you can, as a Christian, hook up with somebody who doesn't share your views on, and you have to be serious about this, you have to really outline where you stand on these things. If you don't, you're going to have a miserable marriage. You will. So you meet, that, you meet right, that right girl or that right boy, and you marry her, and you devote your life to her or him. This is an ideal that has been completely lost in our culture. Where do we see this outlined? Matthew 19, 4 through 6 says, we go. And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which which made them at the beginning, made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Okay, so you meet your wife, you meet a girl, you marry her, you devote your life to her, then you proceed after you're married, to move in together. That's a novel concept, isn't it, these days? <laughs> then you have children, and then you raise them in a godly fashion. You say that to some people, they, will, they won't even know what you're talking about. 1 Timothy 3, uh, verses 4 and 5 says, One uh, that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity or seriousness. For a man, for if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? So all this used to be a given. 
Just as an aside, if you want to read about a dysfunctional family, read about Eli and his sons in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 2.12 says, Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. The term Belial refers to the wicked character of Eli's sons, essentially calling them devils. The problem was twofold. The wickedness of the sons and the failure of their father to raise their son, his sons in a godly manner. As men, we have to understand that the leadership and care of our wives and children is one of our highest priorities. One we should take extremely seriously. Here's a question. Here's two questions. First one, can you, can you say that your wife is growing more spiritually because of your leadership in her life than she would be without you? Can you say that your wife is growing more spiritually because of your leadership in her life than she would be without you? And number two, why must the pastor or any of us have his children in subjection to his authority? Why? Because the pastor sometimes has to exercise discipline in the church. He has to kick out those who are unruly or rebuke those who are erring. That isn't going to be very effective if his own children are riotous and unruly. But this authority does come with an important responsibility. In Ephesians 6, 4, we read, Any fathers provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We don't want to be tyrants. We don't want to abuse our authority. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, quote, we are the guardians and the custodians of this soul. This necessarily entails words of exhortation, words of encouragement, words of reproof, sometimes words of blame. Is it unreasonable to expect our children to live in accordance with their profession and hold them accountable to live godly lives? Is that unreasonable? Are we being rigid and oppressive to expect them to be in church with us? Are we serious about our own profession? The Christian family is the bedrock of a healthy society, but notice how this godly institution has been twisted beyond all recognition. The statistic of average U.S. marriages ending in divorce is how much? Anyone want to guess? Go ahead. 50? It's, it's 50%. It's more in the black and Hispanic community, but generally speaking, it's 50%. That's unbelievable. This is the, and this is the sign of the times. The average for children born to couples that are not married, how many? 40%. And, and growing. That's if they even have children. In the last two years, we have discovered that there are now over 40 different genders. Really? Whether it is guilt, apathy, or indifference, we have all helped to contribute to this societal dysfunction. Diana West, in her book, The Death of the Grown-Up, 
commenting on this dysfunction, says, quote, It has inaugurated a new way of life defined by its very shapelessness, being without becoming, process without culmination, journey without end. Indeed, the state of perpetual adolescence that is the way of life today. I think that's well said. I don't think it can be overstated that this mentality of perpetual adolescence has now coupled with a new diversity victimology agenda promoted within the public and university school system. That can't be overstated. It has also corrupted every level of government policy and our society at large. At this point, the destruction seems to me to be self-perpetuating. I don't know how to undo it. It drives me crazy. Does it drive you guys crazy when we look around and see this? Example, an article entitled, What University Snowflakes Are Really About? We see to what degree this intellectual cancer has metastasized. America's privileged students at elite colleges and universities continue to be traumatized by speech they find hurtful and threatening. Last November at Yale, by the way, Yale's founding charter in 1701 read this way, quote, wherein youth may be instructed in the arts and sciences and through the blessing of Almighty God may be fitted for public employment both in church and civil state. How far Yale has fallen. So, continuing, last November, it was a faculty email suggesting that students should lighten up on policing Halloween costumes for racial insensitivity. That's what, the, that's what the faculty's occupied with. By the way, tuition at Yale, anyone have a guess? Annual tuition? $50,000. Were you considering Yale? <laughs> Good thing you didn't. <laughs> I guess you get what you pay for. At the University of Missouri, some students were offended by the administration's failure to investigate and punish, punish alleged racial slurs. A Harvard student recently told Fox News that displaying the American flag in a dorm room or just being in the same class with a pro-life student is hurtful and insensitive. Now, students at Emory University are experiencing pain and fear and frustration over messages for, uh, supporting Donald Trump that were written on chalk on a, camp, uh, on a campus sidewalk. At Scripps College, hashtag Trump 2016 written on a dorm whiteboard was called racist and intentional violence. Please. The article continues, there's been no end of commentary on these incidents. Some have correctly pointed out that they are the fruit of nearly four decades of the progressive and leftist transformation of the university. That's true. Once a protected space for truth, independent thought, and free speech, now universities are training centers for left-wing cadres and commissars, intolerant of political heresy and opposing points of view. This is so important. Other critics blame a culture of permissive parenting and a therapeutic obsession with children's feelings that have led to demands for, quote, safe spaces, speech codes, 
and rigorous surveillance of microaggressions. The university's role of being in loco parentis, or in place of the parent, now means recreating the pampered indulgence of, ch of childish feelings that may, many affluent students have become used to at home. The article concludes by saying, it is safe to say that all this largesse will amount to at least hundreds of millions of dollars distributed to faculty, staff, administrators, and students, especially those of color, no matter how privileged. And that's what the snowflakes are really about. Activists who extort and leverage money and power from institutions of higher education that have, have abandoned their mission to transmit knowledge and turn students into independent, critical thinkers worthy of political freedom. What's the takeaway? My observation is this. Society will no doubt continue, but it will be wholly unrecognizable for people like us with a clear-cut Christian testimony. That is why it's so important to have one. The last bulwark for combating this malig malignancy is for Christians to stand against it. But we are losing the battle because rather than taking a stand, Many Christians are capitulating to it or embracing it. The Epimenides of our, of our time, Socrates, said, He is a man of courage who does not run away, but remains at his post and fights against the enemy. Note the warning in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. I think that uh, Dalton and I were on the same wavelength because he stole this from me today. <laughs> but be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple, the living God." As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you. And ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Continuing, Titus chapter 1, verse 7, a steward of God or overseer, one appointed by God over his household, family, and the church, one that is faithful, both to his Lord and Master, to the trust committed to him and to the persons under his care. In context, it's one who manages spiritual truths, lives on God's behalf, and is wholly accountable to him and others. The church is God's. Acts twenty twenty eight. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Continuing, not self-willed. Not doing things according to his own will, but according to the will of God. This would be a man who is not obstinate, stubborn, or inflexible, the word signifies one that is pleased with himself, has a conceited opinion of himself, is proud and haughty and despises others. Not soon angry 
and no striker. The word angry means feeling resentment, being provoked, showing anger, wearing marks of anger, raging, furious, tumultuous. As John Gill tells us, no striker means either with his hands, quote, whose hand is not swift to strike, end quote, not one who is nimble and ready at it, who no sooner is abused or injured, but he lifts up his hands and strikes, or with the tongue, quote, not wounding with his tongue, being too sharp and severe in his admonitions and reproofs of weak brethren or fallen believers, and especially ought not to use defamatory, reproachful, and abusive language toward any. Not given to wine. Simply said, John MacArthur says, this applies to drinking any alcoholic beverage in any way that dulls the mind and subdues inhibitions. Read, make a note to read uh, uh, Proverbs 23, 29 through 32. It kind of lays it out there. The last verse, verse 32 says, at last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. I think that's enough said. Continuing, not given to filthy lucre. Even the early church, some men became pastors in order to gain wealth. Today we have the same trend. I can list probably hundreds. Kenneth Copeland, T.D. Jakes, Benny Hinn, Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar. These men are multi-multi-millionaires. These heretics are described well in 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3. But there are false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. This is it. And through covetousness, shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Titus 1.8 But a lover of hospitality. This actually means a lover of strangers and to the entertainment of them. It has a special application to saints and fellow ministers, but extends to all of us. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in great trial and of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. John Gilligan says it so well, though their poverty was great, their liberality was rich and large. Though it, might, though it might be but little they gave in quantity, it was much in quality, much in liberality. I'm often convicted because I'm not the most hospitable person. I, when I was growing up, I grew up in a, um, in a very French family. And my mom would tell me stories that when she was a little girl, you never had guests over. It was, it was family. That was it. 
And that's how I grew up. I never had, we never had guests. We never entertained people. And it was fine. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, I didn't, I wasn't any less for it. That's just the way it was. It, but God is so good because he brought me my wife and she's was really, her life was really the opposite of that. Her, her family always had people over. There was always someone around. And uh, that was really good for me, you know, because I, 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 uh, I had to get used to it, but now I, I find that it's easier for me to do. And, you know, you've got to put yourself out there. This is, this is part of what being a Christian is. And, and it, the more that you practice these things, the more that you take on these characteristics, the more they'll just be, become a part of you. Galatians 6, 9, and 10 says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Titus 1.8, continuing, a lover of good men or good things, such as prayer, preaching, reading, meditation, spiritual conversation, and every religious exercise. Sober, exercising moderation in what he eats and how he dresses. Prudent, modest, and humble. Being sober-minded in how he thinks of himself and others. Just, simply means honest in our dealings with men. Holy, devout toward God and consistent in living a righteous life. Consistent. Titus 2.12 says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now, temperate means moderate in our appetites and passions. Temperate in eating and drinking, temperate in pleasures, temperate in speech. 1 Corinthians 9.25 says, and every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible, corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Titus 1.9, holding fast the faithful word as he hath taught, excuse me, as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. I love that word. This is emphatic language. This is conscientiously retaining and zealously maintaining true Christian doctrine. 1 Timothy 4.6 says, If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourishing up in the words of faith and of good doctrine whereunto thou hast attained. 2 Timothy 1.3 Hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith, and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Second Timothy 2.15 Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This is how God brings us to spiritual maturity, through the reading, the study, and application of the word of God. We can fulfill this command to hold fast 
to be strong, to be resolute. Yet God knows that we cannot do this in our own strength. He holds us. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The battle can never be fought in the power of our flesh or our strength or our good decisions. It's the Lord's battle, and he fights it through us. Psalm 140, verse 7. O God, the Lord, the strength of my salvation, thou hast covered my head in the day of battle. Now, in the end of verse 9, to be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. This command is twofold. First, to exult, excuse me, to exhort. The Greek word translated exhortation or parakalesis, paraclete, referring to the Holy Spirit, signifies a calling near or for, as an advocate or helper. 1 Corinthians 14.3 says, But he that prophesieth speaketh unto, unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. This prophesying refers to the preaching of the received word of God. This is not any new revelation, as Dalton said earlier. We're not getting new revelation from God. Edification refers to the building up of the body of Christ to be mature in the faith. Exhortation is the encouragement to be more vigorous, cheerful, and fervent in in its execution. Then we see the comforting of the saints who are mentally, emotionally, or physically distressed. Secondly, to convince the gainsayers. A gainsayer is simply one who contradicts or denies what has been alleged, an opposer. Back to our text in Titus chapter 1, verses 10, 11, and 12, we read, For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of them, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, or slow bellies. In the end, when we preach the truth, there will always be opposition. As we read here, uh, Titus faced it. Timothy was charged by Paul to do the same in Ephesus. In 1 Timothy 1, 3 and 4, As I besought thee, to abide still at Ephesus when I went to Macedonia that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. And then Paul dealt with it in writing the book of Romans, Romans 16, 17, and 18. Now I beseech you, that, uh, now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Now we have the same challenge here in Runner Park. But we know the truth, 
we have the words of life. As John tells us in 1 John 5, 19 and 20, and we know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So he has given us an understanding. But standing for righteousness is not going to be easy. Who would you say is the greatest apostle? Paul? Listen to what he said. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. It's amazing. The greatest apostle. That's how I feel. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's not our wisdom. It's not our power. It's not our fair speech or enticing words. It's as Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Who knows who Edmund Burke is? I'm going to quote his most famous quote, and then you'll know. The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is what? Is for good men to do nothing. As we read before in Acts 20, 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. So as Hebrews so perfectly says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. We may not understand what God is doing in our lives. We don't have a complete picture. We don't have all the answers. But what we do have is all the answers that he's chosen to give us. God will keep his promises and fulfill all his will. Living as God calls us to live will require commitment and personal sacrifice. Nothing in life that is worth having comes without a cost or requires no effort. As Psalm 126.5 says, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. In other words, no pain, no gain. I have a challenge for you as we look forward to 2019. And I can give you a guarantee. 
And I don't have my red ultra suede coat on, so this isn't a this isn't a used car salesman pitch. I assure you, I guarantee you, if you do these things, you'll have a more joyful 2019. You'll be a more well-adjusted person. You'll be happier. So here it is. Read your Bible more in 2019 than you did in 2018. Come to church more in 2019 than you did in 2018. Find ways to serve the Lord and exhibit these characteristics in 2019 more than you did in 2018. If you're not doing anything for the Lord, find something to do. There's plenty to do. You, you do that. Come talk to me at the end of 2019 and tell me you're not a better Christian. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for the privilege once again to be in this pulpit. I pray, Lord, that what was said today will resonate, that we'll take what we heard, that we'll live out our Christian lives, Lord. Help us to have a better 2019 than we did in 2018. Help us to grow more. Help us to find ways to serve you more. Help us to give you more glory, for you deserve it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bbaptist.org.